You're listening to The Zonecast, the number one source for independent, in-depth scouting and ranking of amateur hockey players in North America. Here is your host, Jashvina Shaw. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Episode 5 of Zonecast. I'm your host, Jashvina Shaw. For this week's episode, we did things a little bit differently. I actually spoke to one of our own, Brian Murphy, who serves as our head USA scout. He also served as a head coach at Tufts for 18 years and coached for 22 years total at the school, so he's very familiar with Division Three hockey. So for this week's episode, we broke down a lot of the misconceptions that people have about D3. We talked a little bit about players interested in playing D3, how they should approach the recruiting process, what goes into it, the financial aid aspect of potentially playing Division Three hockey, and a lot of really good nuggets for people especially considering Division III. Um, even if you're just a fan of hockey, it's very informational, but especially if you're a player or parent considering Division III, it's very helpful. And um, we also talked a little bit about NESCAC and kind of revealed a little bit of the mystery behind NESCAC, especially in regards to their academic bans and how that affects players considering NESCAC schools. So it's very informational. There are a lot of really good pieces of information in this, so I hope that you all enjoy it. So obviously you coached at Tufts, and what was just your general impression from coaching about the level of play and the quality of players in D3 hockey? Well, I think one thing that, that, that people don't realize about the Division three level or college hockey in general is there's no Division two in college hockey. So it's Division one or Division three. There are some Division two schools that play college hockey, but there's no Division two national championship. There's no scholarship money like there is in basketball or soccer for those Division two hockey players like there are in those other sports. So it's a high level. So if you're not a Division One player, you're a Division Three player. And there's Division Three guys that, that played in the NHL. Some Division Three players end up at Division Three because, quite honestly, they're Division One players that maybe those schools missed on. They weren't recruited. Some of them play other sports, play lacrosse or baseball or soccer. So they want to be able to do both, which is really, really, really hard at the Division One level. And um, sometimes, and we had this, you know, um, quite a bit at Tufts in the NESCAC and Division Three in general. You have a player who has a two for four at a, a Division One school that's, you know, maybe not a great academic place, and they want the NESCAC type education, and uh, they would rather play Division Three and go to a school like that than they would a Division One place that maybe isn't quite as good academically. So. Uh, the impression I, I had always was it's a high level. The Division three kids are there because they love it. Uh, not that the D1 kids don't, but uh, they, you know, they're not on scholarship. They're not um, maybe getting the attention that the Division one guys do, uh, but they work their butts off, and again, it's, it's a high level. Mm-hmm. So let's say a player is interested in going into D3. What goes into that on a recruiting side so like what were your impressions kind of being on one end of it and what advice do you have for players who are considering the d3 route right so i think you know every player you know that wants to go and play college hockey wants to play at the division one level you know as you start to get near your senior year uh and you're you're a good player you're just not maybe getting that interest from the division one schools and you kind of know that 
um, and you start to think about, okay, I'd like to pursue the Division three route, uh, the first thing you should do is you should talk to your coach, uh, communicate that with, um, with him or her, and then you should send emails out to the schools you're interested in, make a list of 10 or 12 schools, and email the head coach, you as the player, email, don't have your parents do it, your coach can follow up, but don't have your coach do it, don't have your advisor do it, you do it. Um, send the coach an email and copy all of the assistance that you can find from the website so that a lot of eyes get on it. And what you should put in that email is just a general introduction of where you're going to play the following year, where you're playing this year. So if you're at a prep school, say I'm at prep school X, and next year I plan on going to school, or next year I plan on um, playing junior hockey here. And with that email, if you have any type of highlight video, which is not necessary, but a lot of players will have that, you should make a link to that so that the coach can sit at his or her desk and watch that video. It's a pretty easy thing. It's convenient for coaches to do. Uh, you should also put all of your contact information in there, your cell phone, um, your home phone, but generally people are using their cell. And the most important piece is to put in that email a copy of your transcript. Um, players that are looking to go to any school, but to a Division three school specifically, you want to have a copy of your transcript scanned, easily accessible, because you never know when a coach is going to reach out and say, hey, I want to get a copy of your transcript. Sometimes those things happen quickly that you can get in the hands of a coach right away. And... Um, you shouldn't have somebody holding on to it for you. You should have access to it. Make a copy, scan it where you can get it easily, and make sure that information, along with your test scores, is in that email. Uh, sometimes players will hold back with their test scores because maybe they don't think it's at a certain level. Just be transparent and honest about those test scores. Don't play games. Uh, you waste everybody's time. You know, if you're in the mid-400s on your, your testing, um, you have to let a coach know that, and generally they're going to say, hey, unless you can get it up to here, I wish you the best, but it's not going to work out. Now you know, now they know, and everybody's on the same page. So you want to be sure you get all that information to coaches right away, and then at that point, if the coach is interested, the coach can get an idea from admissions, and I guess we can get into that further here as far as where you may stand, um, as far as they're helping you to get into the school. And when you're talking about Division three sports, but I guess we're talking hockey here, that ability for coaches to push a player and to help a player get into a school that he or she normally would not be able to get into easily or get into at all is really like that kind of scholarship for the Division three player. Um, it's, it's kind of all that hard work you've done if that coach wants you. That coach can, it's a special talent. You know, these schools like to have athletes in their classrooms. They like the experience, the leadership, and all those things that, that those types of students bring. So they're willing to, you know, they have to field the team, too. If you, if you have a place like Amherst and you're just waiting for your hockey players to get in on their own, guess what? You're not going to have enough hockey players to field the team. And that's true of a number of different schools so they're going to have to work to get you in and then that's sort of your 
quote-unquote scholarship at the Division Three level. Let's talk about, just talk about financial aid at the Division Three level yes. before I forget. Okay. So there's no scholarships at the Division Three level in any sport. Um, in hockey, uh, in fact, the coaches at the Division Three level are not even supposed to walk you down to financial aid. They have to be completely and totally hands-off. It's all need-based. Hockey talent has no impact supposed to have no impact in what you get for an aid package at a school. Okay, so I think that there's a little bit of a misconception out there that you can leverage more money out of a Division Three coach, and maybe there's some places that aren't playing by the rules completely, but 99.9% .9 of those schools and those places, you're going to have to go through the regular financial aid process. Um, and you should do that sooner rather than later. There's a, some good websites, collegeboard.org, I believe it is. You can Google it. You can go in there and use the financial aid calendar and get a general idea about what it's going to cost to go to a school. And where scholarships come in is if you're a great student and you're, you're going to be far more attractive to, say, a school that maybe doesn't have a, as high a profile as an SCAC school, for instance, that school may be able to give you an academic scholarship or state schools are going to be less than private schools, those kinds of things. So just that idea that, you know, there's money to be had is just not true. So, um, however, there are cases where your financial aid package can be better than if you had, say, a little bit of scholarship money in a Division One school. So shouldn't just assume that it's too expensive. Um, make sure... You as a player and your parents sit down and you, you get this stuff figured out and done because you don't want to be last minute and realizing either you didn't know how much it was going to cost or you can't afford it or you need that extra loan or you should have looked at a school that maybe would have wanted you academically more. So you want to make sure you're doing that. Mm -hmm. Sorry, go ahead, continue. College Board is a website I have not heard in 10 years. It's, it's, I think it's still active. It um, is. <laughs> or you can go to whatever, yeah, you can go to whatever... Um, Whatever, you're, whatever school you're applying to, and they're going to have links of places you can go. I looked quickly the other day at a school, and they, it was still one of the links they recommended. So, That's um, good. Oh, one last thing. Yes. Make sure you take your testing. Uh, take it as many times as you can. Players don't want to hear that. That's too bad. If you're playing junior hockey, you should, you should take that time to take a class. Maybe also get an SAT tutor. Uh, the other thing is take the ACTs. I can't tell you the number of times I saw a student-athlete who had marginal SATs for a NESCAC-type school would take the ACT, and it would pop much better. Uh, it would just be a much better score as far as the percentile is concerned. The sense that I got was that it was a little bit more subject-oriented, and um, that the, the statistics say that men in actually do a little better on the ACTs than the SATs. Can't promise that, obviously, but just something else that you should do if you don't do well on it. You just report whatever the better test is, and sometimes they can mix and match, too. So you want to give yourself options. You only have to go through this process once. Mm -hmm. 
So you mentioned that if you're playing junior hockey, you should take the SAT classes. And one of the things I wanted to ask you about was there's a little controversy in terms of should players stay until they age out of junior hockey and attend school when they're, say, 21 years old. And I wanted to ask you kind of how those players adapt and fit in, whether you think it's a good idea for them to stay. And on the same kind of vein, if those players have any difficulty adapting to kind of re-entering the academic world after being out for several years. Right, so obviously college hockey has changed a lot. It's really unique to college sports um, where the, the 20, 21-year-old freshman is actually fairly common, and that's somewhat new the last 10 years. And, um, you know, it, it's it's for sure happening, probably even more at the Division three level than the Division one level in a lot of ways. Um, yes, if you're going to do a year or two of junior hockey, uh, you certainly should be trying to keep yourself in some sort of academic world. Uh, again, whether that's taking a class, the local college, sometimes those will be able to transfer for credit, but it's just kind of keeping you a little bit sharp. Um, and then SAT class, again, something else is kind of keeping you sharp. I think if you're, you know, if you're, say, this year, you're a 97 and you hadn't taken the SATs in three years and you're going to take an SAT prep class, I don't know. How much value you get out of that? I guess it can't hurt. But particularly if you've just graduated high school or you're in a, a junior league, uh, you always can get your testing up. Well, unless you're pulling 800s, you can get your testing up. As far as my personal experience, and I, and I don't think I think that other coaches would, would say this. You know, the, the the recruiting the older kids is is um you know people that complain about kids playing junior hockey, it's their decision. Uh, if that if that player wants to go play hockey. Uh, there's kids that backpack around Europe, right? And I'm not so sure that they're do, always doing the right things when they do that and they take their gap year. So players are going to take gap year if they take two. That's fine, too. I think that um, what what has happened is, is that those kids that the, the, the higher-end Division three schools want, they're bubble kids, right? Because there's no D2 like we talked about. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's one or three. So these kids are close. A lot of them are really close, and so they do do that extra year. Right or wrong, it happens because there's some interest from Division One schools. And again, just because you can play at a Division One or a Division Three school doesn't mean you will. There's, there's a lot more kids that can play at Division One schools than there are roster spots. So you can you can understand why a kid may a player may want to do that. It's also not a bad time, you know. Or you can go to anywhere from Alaska to Louisiana to Foxborough to play junior hockey and uh, you know you're getting better for sure you're getting more mature and, and I think that's the biggest thing that I saw was those players were a little bit rusty at first you know that 20 year old 19 year old when they get back in the classroom but I found that the maturity aspect you know they kind of had the nonsense generally out of them and they weren't there to just party and not again I'm not saying all the 18-year-olds that go to college party, but you know, there's a little bit of that first time away from home. That nonsense is kind of out of those kids' systems. They know how to pay bills, uh, how to eat, take care of themselves, and uh, there's just, again, a maturity level that I found actually helped those kids to succeed. They also, and this is something that was fairly consistent with those older players, they seem to value the opportunity to 
at a, an academic place. They understand the sacrifices that whoever, usually their parents, was making to pay their tuition. And they didn't want to, and again, I'm not saying that the 18-year-olds don't do this. This is a generalization, obviously. But those kids understood the value of why they were there. So, and as far as on the ice, college hockey at the Division three level is older. If you're going to go in as an 18-year-old and you, you, you know, you want to be able to compete for playing time, which if you're going to a D3 school, you want to play a lot, you, um... You're going to be competing against older players that are more mature, more experienced, and probably a little bit further ahead physically. So it may take you a couple of years. And if that's okay, that's okay. Um, so I think that's, and, and from a coaching standpoint too, if say this year you're going to take a 99 who's really good, and, and this it will happen and it has happened in the NESCAC, for instance, but at other places, that 99, if that 99 is good enough to come in and play and help you, next year and you've worked to get that player in, there's a really, there's a pretty good chance you could lose that player. And so from a coaching standpoint, you've got to be a little careful of those younger players that are right out of prep school, let's say, um, because they jump ship. And again, not saying all kids would do that, but it does happen. So I guess the message to people that are interested in D3 is, you know, do what you feel is best uh, until you're sick of doing it. If you're sick of playing junior hockey and you're not quite there, there's club options, there's other options as well. But I think the idea that it's bad for that kid to have played, say, Tier 2 or Tier 3 even for two years. I can give you examples of kids from the EHL, for instance, that never, ever would have had the chance to play college hockey had they not done a couple of years in the EHL. There's no way. So there, there is... So you gave kind of a little bit of an example of maybe young players being recruited straight out of prep, which I kind of wanted to ask about. Uh, how often, or if at all, do you see players jumping straight from prep or high school hockey into, I guess mostly prep, into D3? Or Do you think that those players are ready enough for that level of competition, or do they need an extra year of something else to get stronger or faster, that kind of? Oh, again, yeah, I think it, you know, it varies. You know, there's players that, that don't need it, that... Uh, and the coaches will, will, will tell, will, will, you know, if, they're, if these coaches are recruiting you, and I guess we can get into how kind of that works specifically, but if you're a senior in prep school and, and these Division three coaches want you to come to their school, then, then you're ready. Uh, I don't think there's ever a scenario where if a coach is telling you we want, we'd like you to come next year that you should say, well, I think I need another year. Now, again, those particular players, if they're in their senior year at a prep school and say a NESCAC school is really interested in that player, uh, there's, there's, they're probably a little bit on that bubble, but maybe a couple of years away from potentially becoming the depth guy at the D1 level. Now, you have a conversation with your family and your coaches, and, and what is it you want to do, right? Do you want to spend that time playing junior hockey to try to ride the fourth line at a D1 place, right? Or do you feel like this is where you want to go to school, get a great education, and play a lot? So... I think it varies from player to player. I think the ones that I was referencing by bringing up the, say, the EHL there, mm -hmm. uh, but you could substitute NA3HL, um, USPHL Premier, is uh, the kid out of, say, public high school. Uh, there's not many kids that can go right from a public high school in Massachusetts, certainly, and, and play at a Division three level. They're going to need some seasoning. Mm -hmm. 
So, um, I guess kind of shifting a little bit over, uh, you know, D3 is broad. It, it refers to a lot of schools, but in particular, the NESCAC schools are a little bit different than kind of the other D3 schools. So what are misconceptions that you think people have about NESCAC or like what kind of inside, inside information, I guess, do you have? So, uh, so I don't know about misconceptions. I think that it's true of any um, Division three school that they recruit. Okay, you don't just Division three schools. Almost all of them have head coaches that are full time and assistant coaches that are full time. Uh, they're recruiting. They have a number they want to bring in for their freshman class. They are looking at players. They're looking at grades. How does this kid fit? And um, they have the ability to help kids get into that school. Um, there's kids that don't make clearinghouse that, that, that their option is to play Division three and there's Division three schools that can help those kids get in and, and go to school there, and that's great, by the way. So, uh, as far as the NESCAC is concerned, and, and people usually, you know, there's other schools beyond those ten hockey-playing NESCAC schools that are great schools. Um, a lot of them are local, but the NESCAC as a league, not just for hockey, has a system that's it's not, it's not like the index in the Ivy League, but it's somewhat similar, um, where they have bands, and there's A bands, there's B bands, and there's C bands. And those are academic bands. So uh, what they did a number of years ago was, because it was getting a little bit out of control and schools were taking wherever they wanted, and was to try to level the playing field and make sure that, uh, you know, competitively schools were uh, taking the same sorts of kinds of kids that are similar to their student body, if that makes sense. So uh, A-bands at an SCAC school, and I'm just talking SCAC schools, are generally going to be students that are very much like the profile of that particular institution. So look at the top third of an SCAC, that's going to be top 5% of your class. Uh, that's going to be 700-ish on, on, on your testing. 30-ish plus on your your ACT. Um, that type of player would be an A band at most. Again, this varies from school to school and coach to coach and year to year, but those players are going to fit into that A band. Now, A bands aren't unlimited, but generally A bands are very valuable, and if you're a really good player and you're an A band, there's going to be a lot of people that are going to want you. It's like anything else. You're going to have more options the better student you are. Uh, B-bands, you know, you're going to drop down a little from there. Still really, really good students. Back to the A-bands. Those A-bands, without that A sort of chip being put on them by the hockey coach, would potentially get into the school. Maybe it's 50-50. Maybe. But with the coach's help, you're in. You're set. So it's kind of just tipping the scales is what you, how you view those A-bands. B-bands getting a little lower. If you look at those kids, maybe uh, 20% would get in on their own, something like that. Um, it, it does happen. Uh, finding really good players that are B-bands is important. Um, and then there's C-bands. Now, where it kind of gets interesting as far as an SCAC is C-bands are limited in at each place. And the number, I believe, is 18. I got them a few years out here, so don't hold me to that. Total C bands within the athletic department at each NESCAC school. So, if you look at some of those places, some of them have 30 sports. So, it's not a lot of C bands. 
when you start to break it down. If you're looking at hockey and what are they going to get, how many C-bands they get, uh, again, I can't speak for everybody. I don't know this for sure, and and I'm guessing it varies year to year with what player, I'm sorry, with what uh, schools need. But it's going to be somewhere between one and three uh, as far as what number of C-bands those schools have. And some places don't take testing, don't require testing. They have a little bit more flexibility in, in placing players in those bands. But a C-band would be, and again, I don't want to get into numbers, but you know, certainly you, you, you got to be up you know, in the 600s in your, in your testing, and you got to be in the top quarter of your class or so. It doesn't mean you're, you're a shoo-in. You know, recommendations and interviews and all that other stuff matters. So, so what happens is if, you need, if you're looking at a class of, say, six or seven, looking at one or two C bands, or two or three B bands, a couple of A bands, give or take one or two, and that's going to be your class. So um, that's how it works. It, it's not, again, it's not, it doesn't, if you have a, a low academic player, you can't even that player out with a really high academic player like you can with the index. It's more of a puzzle, and you've got to fit players into those categories. And that's how it works with all sports, in the, in the NESCAC specifically. Um, so, you know, what does that mean as far as student-athlete going into, you know, men's or women's uh, hockey coach at a NESCAC school? And is like I said earlier, you want to make sure they have all your academic stuff because they can get a pre-read from admissions about kind of where they think you might fit. And particularly if you're playing junior hockey, all your stuff is done. Maybe your testing goes up, but you, you, your grades are done. So you should be able to get a pretty good idea pretty early. And at that point, the coach will start to talk about if that coach is interested, and you'll know. I mean, if you're emailing a coach or calling a coach and, and he or she is not calling you back, probably not that interested. Okay, so coach is, is, is talking to you, communicating, all of that stuff. Uh, you know that coach is pretty interested. Players should be out visiting schools now if they want to go to school for the fall of 19. Um, getting an idea of the campuses, trying to set up meetings with the coaches, or one of the coaches, while you're there, doing a student-led tour. And just having a quick chat about what that coach may be looking for. And then you need to start to generate an idea based on what is the coach expressing as far as interest. Where are you interested in? You want to go to a school where if you don't play hockey, you're still going to enjoy your experience. You want to go to a school that has something you're interested in studying, right? You know, like if you're a 98 next year and you have no idea what you want to study, you might want to start to think about that a little bit, kind of getting kind of getting old, so have an idea. Um, And then what happens is the most of the recruiting, and I'm speaking in the NESCAC specifically, but this would be true of other Division III schools, happens in the early decision rounds. The reason for that is that at most places, early decision is binding. So if you apply early decision, November is generally, again, give or take a couple of weeks, and they can there's some flexibility with that deadline with athletes. But if you're applying early decision and that coach is working to get you in, it's binding. You're going to school there. It's their version of a letter of intent. So a coach, if a coach has a player they value as a 
I'll use our star ratings. 2.75 is a pretty good Division three player. If you have a whole team of 2.75, you're going to be pretty good. The coach has a 3, and again, I'm just using our star ratings to simplify it, or a 3.25, and then has a 2.75 who wants to apply early decision, but the 3, 3.25 is sort of saying, well, I want to wait. My coach says this, this school is going to come see me play. Guess what? The difference isn't enough in most cases that that coach is going to wait on you. That coach is going to go with the 275 kid who really wants to go to school next. Uh, the bird in the hand, right? And it makes sense for them. Um, so you want to have an idea about what you may want to do. And if you're going into particularly your last year of junior hockey, you don't want to be waiting until April, May to start to say, geez, I think I might have to go to the Division Three route particularly if it's a higher-end academic place. Uh, the number of times really good players came across my desk this time of year that we would have loved to have had and was a great kid, you know, nothing wrong with the player or the person or the place they were. It was just nothing we could do. So you want to start to generate some idea about, am I, am, am I really a Division One player or, or is this going to be my path? And then, okay, well, these are the schools I'm interested in. This is really where I'd like to go. And then you communicate that to the coach. The coach might say, we know you want to go here, but we just don't think it's going to work out. So the early decision route is where almost all of that recruiting, there's some stuff that will happen later in the process, but there's that first round of early decision is in November. You'd know by, say, Christmas. And then a lot of schools, not all, have a second round, uh, which you know, give, say, prep kids time to get through the holiday tournaments and, you know, junior guys to get more than half their season in, get more exposure. Uh, there's that second round of early decision where, you know, in a lot of places, they'll do one or two players that just make sense in that early decision one round. And then the early decision two round, you're really finishing out your class with players that are interested and players that really want to be at your place that really want to go to a school also have more value to coaches than players that are kind of dragging their feet. So so that's how that works. And then as far as other schools, you know, schools that are that are that are not looking for seven hundreds on the SATs and there's a lot of those schools that have great hockey programs, great environments, um, those schools will start later. So there still will be opportunity. Uh, you know, it just may not be at a place that's a higher-end academic place because, again, if they're going to work to get you into the school, they want to be sure you're going to attend. And that's where the early decision stuff comes into play. Mm-hmm. Oh, and the other thing is if you're, if, you, if you're telling a coach, hey, you're my first choice, and then you get in your car and you drive into the next place, hey, you're my first choice, they're going to find out, and then you're going to have nothing. So don't do that. Just be honest. And they may say, well, we're not, we're not going to support your application. And you, you have the right to ask that, are you going to support my application? Um, generally, if they say yes, you're going to be okay. Some schools will say, you're all set, you're going to get in. Some will say, I'm not the admissions department, but we're going to support your application fully. We're going to use a band on you. Um, but you should be honest. And, and, and most of the coaches are going to be really upfront and really honest with you, uh, I would hope. Mm-hmm. I think those are all the questions I had, unless you wanted to add anything. 
Thanks again to Murph for, as we call him at Neutral Zone, Murph, for joining us on this week's episode of Zonecast and providing his insight into Division Three. I hope you guys found it helpful, especially those of you uh, who didn't know that much about D3 or, or who are potentially looking at D3 as an option for post-junior, post-prep hockey. So that'll do it for this week's episode. As always, where if you have you know, topic suggestions, please let us know. You can tweet at us. We have a survey floating around online that I believe is linked to in our SoundCloud account. You can also find us on iTunes now. So if you haven't already done that, you can subscribe there or through your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to leave us a review and questions, comments, concerns. Feel free to let us know. Hope you have a wonderful week, weekend. If you're celebrating 4th of July, have a great 4th of July and we'll catch up with you soon.